We need to pray that God will change our desires, that first and foremost, above everything else, we would desire God. We would find our ultimate joy in Him. And we must pray then that God would help us to see how every pleasure that we seek outside of God never really satisfies. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom continues his current series with part four of War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. Is there anything that gives you more reward and pleasure than knowing God? Do you desire an experience or feeling more than you desire faithfulness and obedience to Jesus? Well, as you'll learn today, that thing, whatever it might be, has become an idol of the heart. You are pursuing a cardboard reality instead of the real thing, and it will never satisfy. Well, friend, let's open our Bibles now and join Tom Pennington with today's message on The Word Unleashed. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, it's hard to see on the surface the flow of the theme that ties that paragraph together, but it is a paragraph. There is a common theme, and the common theme is introduced to us in verse 1. Where do these quarrels and fightings come from? The issue is conflict. That's the theme that lies behind this paragraph. And what we learn in this paragraph is that there are very specific steps that you and I must take in order to deal with interpersonal conflict. In fact, this paragraph contains several eminently practical steps for dealing with conflict in our lives. And the first comes in the first three verses. It's this, identify the true source of conflict. You see, before you and I can legitimately and adequately deal with the conflict in our lives, we must understand where it comes from. What's the source? Verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now, the second part of verse 1, we could legitimately convert to a statement of fact. James says, the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you is your pleasures. You see, the pursuit of sinful pleasures or our efforts to satisfy the sinful cravings of our hearts is what creates quarrels and arguments. As we saw last time, the word pleasures translates the Greek word hedone. You recognize that word. It's the word from which we get our English word hedonism or hedonist. It came to be used of the pleasure or the desire of all the senses, and eventually it came to describe the desire of or the cravings of the heart. Get the picture that James is painting here. For all of us who are believers, there are still within us, growing out of that unredeemed part of us, strong desires, our cravings, that are continually assaulting our souls. Those cravings may be for position, for power, for influence, for peace, for security, for safety, to be married, 
not to be married, to have children, not to have children, any number of strong desires to be liked, to be accepted for sexual pleasure. There's any number of strong desires that could be resident within our hearts, but that's what he's describing. Those strong cravings that are attached to our unredeemed self, the flesh that still resides in us, even though we're a new person in Christ, we still retain the flesh, and attached to that are these cravings. They assault our souls. According to James chapter 1, verse 14, they lead us into temptation. And according to James chapter 4, verse 1, they lie behind every sinful conflict. Very important to understand that when you're involved in a quarrel, or when I'm in a quarrel, when we're in an argument, a fight with someone else, the issue, the true source of the conflict is not the issue we're arguing. It isn't the other person in the argument. The problem is us, the cravings of our hearts. You see, James pictures here the cravings of our hearts like a mighty army inside of us, ready at a moment's notice to declare war against anybody who stands in the way of our getting whatever it is we've set our hearts upon. Every time you find yourself in a quarrel, in an argument, in a verbal war, ask yourself this question, what self-centered craving am I trying to protect by engaging in this argument? Because that's what it always comes back to. Now, as we continue to look at what James teaches us here, James is still helping us to see the true source of our conflict. But notice the progression of his argument. In verse 1, he makes the point that self-seeking desires lie behind every conflict, every quarrel. And then in verse 2, he illustrates exactly how those desires produce quarrels and arguments. He's told us that it is these desires that produce them. And now in verse 2, he's going to give us a couple of illustrations to help us see how that actually happens. The first illustration is found at the beginning of verse 2. You lust and do not have. Now the word lust is a synonym for the word pleasure. They're used together and synonymously here. The word lust simply means to crave, to have a strong desire, to set your heart on something. What's the relationship between lust and pleasure? Lust is the craving unfulfilled, and pleasure is the craving satisfied. And so he says you crave and you do not have. You know, there are profound lessons about God's moral universe in that statement. God in his great love usually does not allow all of our cravings and desires to be fulfilled. And even when they are fulfilled, they never fully satisfy. You see, our lives are crowded with discarded pleasures. Before we enjoyed them, each one promised to bring true, lasting satisfaction. But instead, it only created a greater appetite for more. It's like the maroon man dying of thirst imagining that the salt water that he drinks is truly satisfying his thirst, when in reality it's only creating this greater appetite for what truly satisfies. James writes, you crave and you do not have, so you commit murder. Now those are by design words intended to shock us. Remember, he's writing to Christians. There are those who believe that there were actual murders going on in the churches to which James wrote. 
But I think James really wants us to realize how evil our desires and the conflicts that they cause really are. You see, we're tempted to sort of dismiss them as unimportant, to assume that quarrels and fights are really not that big a deal. But James is warning us of where our sinful desires can lead us if we allow them to run unrestrained. John Blanchard in his commentary writes, unbridled selfish passion knows no limits. It will do anything to achieve its ends. Never underestimate the power of human desire. And boy, if you want an illustration of that, look in the Old Testament at the two greatest illustrations. The first one, of course, and the most common one being David. In 2 Samuel 11, David craved, he wanted more than anything else, to be with Bathsheba. And he worked it out for that to happen. And then when he realized she was pregnant, to cover the deed, he decides to manipulate Uriah, his faithful man, to go to his home so that perhaps it would be obvious that the baby was by Uriah. But Uriah, being an honorable man, refused to go in and dwell with his wife. And because of that, David felt in his own deceived mind that there was only one option left to him, and that was to arrange for Uriah to be thrust forward in the battle and all the other troops withdrawn so that he would be killed. Uriah died, as it were, by David's own hand. It's as if David took a sword and plunged it into Uriah's heart in the sight of God. Nathan comes into David and says, you are the man. Listen, don't ever underestimate the power of the cravings that live in your heart and in mine. If we don't control them, if we don't restrain them by the power of the Spirit, there is no limit to where they will go to satisfy themselves. The other example, of course, would be the unbelievers Ahab and Jezebel who desperately wanted, Ahab desperately wanted Naboth's vineyard, which was nearby his palace. And like the weak man that he was, he pouted until his wicked wife Jezebel said, don't you worry, Ahab, I'll get it for you. And she arranged for false accusations to be leveled against Naboth and for him to be stoned to death because they wanted a vineyard. Don't you for a moment imagine that things have changed today. Our sinful desires left unchecked can go to the most extreme measures to satisfy themselves. While it's true that our sinful desires can lead to actual murder, as with David, I think James probably has in mind, as most commentators believe, a metaphorical use of the word murder here. In other words, it's not that the people in the congregations James wrote to were actually killing each other. Instead, it was a metaphor for something else that was going on. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. You'll remember the words of our Lord. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, as he presents his famous Sermon on the Mount, he explains the law of God. He doesn't repeal the law of God. He explains it and interprets it in a much more deep and profound way. And in verse 21, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court, be guilty of death. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. In other words, worthy of the death penalty. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. 
Now, Jesus isn't giving really different levels here of offenses. He's saying this, that angry, derogatory words, name-calling, and hatred in the heart are before the throne of God the moral equivalent of murder. They are potential murder because it's the same feeling. It's the same expression of hatred that expresses itself in anger in the heart, hatred in the heart, and pouring out words versus taking a knife or a gun and killing another person. And so what James is saying in James chapter 4, I think, is this. He's saying when we crave and we can't have, our hearts become filled with sinful anger toward the person who stands in our way. It's as if we are willing to kill them. We so badly are angry with them and hate them. And given the time and opportunity and circumstances, we would. That's what James is saying. In verse 2, he gives us a second illustration. He says, you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, he's making the same basic point here as the previous phrase, but there is a progression. Instead of just anger and hatred in the heart, now that anger erupts in fighting and quarreling. We crave something we don't have, and somebody is in our way of getting it. The first thing that happens is this anger and hatred, equivalent, the moral equivalent of murder, occurs in the heart, and then it explodes into the relationship in quarreling and fighting and arguing when we don't get what we want. Don't miss the big point that James is making here. All human conflict, whether a verbal argument between family members or friends, whether physical violence or murder or wars between nations, all human conflict can be traced back to one common source, the unmet cravings of our sinful hearts for what we want. Now, in the rest of verse 2 and in verse 3, James is still here helping us to identify and understand the true source of our quarrels. He's made it clear that the source is these unfulfilled desires But that raises an immediate question. Why are they unfulfilled? Why are these desires not satisfied? And James then identifies two reasons that these desires often aren't met and aren't satisfied. The first reason is we don't ask. Verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. D. Edmund Hebert, great commentator on the book of James, says, instead of turning to God as the giver of every good and perfect gift... We attempt to satisfy our gnawing wants through our own efforts. We just don't ask. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that these people weren't praying at all. It just means they weren't praying and asking God about these particular cravings. Usually, we know that it wouldn't be right to ask God for these things that we're going to consume on our own pleasures. So instead, what do we do? We scheme, we plan, and we sulk when we don't get it, and we get angry with the person who stands in our way. Compare that with Jesus' promise in Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. In other words, everything that is good and right for us, everything that is according to God's will, when we ask, God responds. But there's a second reason that our desires, these desires are often not fulfilled. Not only do we not ask, but in verse 3, we don't ask with the right motives. You ask and do not receive. 
You see, sometimes we are so clueless that we do ask God for things we want that are fully intended just to satisfy these sinful cravings in our hearts, but we don't receive what we ask for. Why? Verse 3, because you ask with wrong motives. Literally in the Greek text it says, you ask badly. And then he goes on to explain why badly. The next phrase explains it. You ask badly so that you may spend it on your pleasures. The Greek word translated spend in this context implies to spend recklessly, to spend with abandon. The same word is used of the prodigal son in Luke 15 where it says he spent everything. In other words, you ask so that you may spend with reckless abandon on your pleasures. Same word is verse 1, pleasures. You know, we often are unaware when this happens. We can see it sometimes in the lives of others, but in our own hearts, we don't even see when we're asking God for things that are really simply to satisfy our own sinful hearts. One commentator records that the following prayer was found in the papers of the deceased John Ward, a member of parliament. Listen to a written prayer that was found in his, in his papers. O Lord, thou knowest that I have mine estates in the city of London, and likewise I have lately purchased an estate in the county of Essex. I beseech thee to preserve the two counties of Middlesex and Essex from fire and earthquake. And since I have a mortgage in Hertfordshire, I beg of thee likewise to have an eye of compassion on that county. As for the rest of the counties, you may deal with them however you're pleased. You know what? That sounds funny, and it is, but it's not so funny because it really shows our own hearts. Often our motives are every bit as skewed as that. We ask God for something, and our motive to get that thing is to satisfy a sinful desire. Let me give you an example. Did you know that we can pray for the conversion of a family member or a coworker, And we can pray earnestly for that, but for all the wrong reasons. Our prayer for them to be converted may simply be so that our lives will be easier, so that our lives will be less trouble. We can pray that our service in the church would be effective and successful. Seems like a worthy thing, but we can pray that with the wrong motive. We can pray it with our primary motive being for the increase and building up of our own reputation. One writer puts it this way, prayer is not asking God for what we want, it's asking God for what he wants. You know, as you think about the fact that our pleasures, our desires are what lie behind our temptations and our arguments and our quarrels and our conflict in life, it reminds you that our greatest and most compelling need is that our desires would be changed. Isn't that right? That our desires would be changed. What Jonathan Edwards called our affections. That our affections would be changed to love and crave holy things and good things and things that God delights in. We need to pray that God will change our desires. That first and foremost, above everything else, we would desire God. We would find our ultimate joy in Him. And we must pray then that God would help us to see how every pleasure that we seek outside of God never really satisfies. Annie Dillard in her book, The Writing Life, describes a fascinating scientific experiment. In the experiment, a male butterfly 
was placed in an enclosure with a living female butterfly of his own species and with a painted cardboard cutout one. Can you guess what happened? When the cardboard cutout of the butterfly was bigger than the male butterfly, and when it was bigger than any female butterfly could ever be, the male butterfly frantically tried to get the attention of the cardboard piece. Nearby, the real, living female butterfly constantly opened and closed her wings in vain. She couldn't get his attention. This isn't just a problem for butterflies. This is a profound illustration of human nature, male and female. We spend our lives chasing cardboard pleasures all the time, ignoring the real thing, pleasure that's found in God. You know, the prophet Jeremiah, turn back to Jeremiah chapter 2 for a moment. The prophet Jeremiah confronts this problem in powerful language. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, I will contend with you, declares the Lord. The word contend here is a Hebrew word that literally means court case. He's saying, I've got a court case against you. I'm the plaintiff, and I'm presenting a complaint against you, Israel. This is God speaking. I have a court case against you. I have a complaint I want to present in court. And with your son's sons, I will contend. For cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see, and send to Kedar and observe closely. In other words, check the nations around us out and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. He says, listen, when the skies hear this, they should shut up. They should absolutely be shaken to their foundations. And what I'm about to say, verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. What a graphic picture of the human heart. Leaving living fountains of fresh, cool water to hew out our own cisterns that don't even hold water. Is there anything that gives you more pleasure than God? Is there anything in your life that gives you more pleasure than God himself? Then whatever it is has become to you your own cistern, hewn out that will never satisfy That thing has become to you an idol of the heart, and it'll never satisfy. You are pursuing a cardboard reality instead of the real thing. David says, God, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Everything else is a cardboard dream. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. Tom will continue with part five on our next program as he once again takes us to God's Word. Do join us then.
But before we leave you today, here's Tom with some closing thoughts. You know, I think James is encouraging every one of us to look at ourselves when when there's conflict in our lives, to look and to see if it's because we have allowed something to become an idol, some pleasure that may in and of itself be acceptable, but it has become too important. It has commandeered the place of God in our lives, and it's become idolatry. And because of that, it's displaced God, and it's also caused us to be in conflict with others. We need to stop the fighting, stop the quarreling, and we need to to repent, to seek God's forgiveness, and to understand the lessons here about how to pursue resolution to conflict. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.